Hi, welcome to Fraud Talk. I'm Sarah Hoffman, the Public Relations Specialist for the ACFE, and I'm joined today by David Debenham, the co-chair of the Supreme Court of Canada Practice Group and co-chair of Fraud Law at Macmillan LLP. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks for joining us today. I just wanted to get more of an idea, since you're an expert at the privacy laws in Canada, for some of our members who might practice in Canada or members who might not be very familiar with uh, the laws in place and they might need to go on a job in Canada. So the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act was first passed in 2000 and then applied to banks, federally owned banks in 2001, and applied to everyone in 2004. So what are some of the ways that uh, in the course of conducting a fraud examination, uh, CFEs might run into issues where they might potentially be in violation of these laws or need to be aware of them? The original act had exceptions for fraud investigations particularly, or generally investigators were protected by uh, an exception that dealt with the investigation of a breach of an agreement or the laws of Canada. So between those two exceptions, they pretty much had a green light to carry on an investigation. Where they would run astray is that it would start out as an investigation for one purpose, and then all of a sudden you you pick up some salacious information along the way and you would actually incorporate that additional information into your report and that's when you would run offside. And by salacious, if you're going through somebody's private information, you come across information of a private nature that's unrelated to a fraud investigation but might be related to the fact that, oh, they have another address there that they use for romantic liaisons or they have any number of things. They have an account with a porn site or whatever it might be. That's how you can run offside when you start using your access to private information for the for purposes not uh, outlined in the act. In 2015, there was an amendment called the Digital Privacy Act. Did that change at all the way that PIPEDA was applied to fraud examiners or within their investigations? Well, the Amendments uh, were generally designed to deal with repeated offenses that they didn't intend to catch. For example, debt collection, used uh, personal information to do debt collection, was contrary to the old act, and they put in an exception to allow it under the new act, and they put in a number of other exceptions and clarifications. So I don't consider the amendments as anything that was really dramatic in the sense that they made something offside that was onside previously it was more of the latter things that were offside originally were made onside by the amendments so that it became a more workable piece of legislation examples would be using private information to do suspicious transaction declarations under the money laundering act before that was offside and it didn't make any sense because you had an obligation under one piece of legislation and a prohibition under another and they sorted that out. Have you seen fraud examiners or people that deal in investigations running into any barriers or has this been a relatively smooth transition? See, the difficulty we have in saying you're running offside, Pepita, is that it's legislation without any effective teeth. If you run offside, they do an investigation, they do a report, it's published saying you ran offside, and uh, other than feeling bad, it means nothing. They don't fine you, they don't, 
there's, there's no effective penalties other than public shaming. So essentially, the act itself is something that they have beefed up enforcement, but it really is not something that you're going to lose sleep on, on it in itself. The point of it, though, is that we now have legislation that protects privacy in other ways, either through a statutory right of invasion of privacy or a common law, case law-driven right of invasion of privacy that builds on Pepita and, and gives people's right of privacy uh, a real teeth so that investigators now can be sued for damages as a result of uh, invading privacy. Are there any specific cases or precedents that you know of that fraud examiners should be especially aware of when possibly uh, personal suits, like you just mentioned, of being sued after the fact for invasion of privacy? In Ontario, there's a case called Jones versus Singh, E-S-I-G-E, which is the one that's typically cited as recognizing once and for all the tort of privacy. Why it's misleading is that it, what happened was a bank employee used her access to banking records to gain access to another customer's account improperly for the purposes of essentially seeing if that customer who was husband's new fiance to see if there was a proper declaration of assets in the context of family law proceedings. So the court said, yes, there's been an invasion of privacy, but awarded nominal damages. And many people's takeaway from that is, well, there is such a tort, but the damages are nominal. The, that no, the nominal part of the damages was restricted to the, that particular case. And you're now going to see class actions by unions, tenants, employees, against insurance companies, investigators, and so forth by insured, where the surveillance breach of privacy has, will result in uh, substantial damages and even punitive damages. So the real uh, development in this field is not the statute, but this the growing uh, enthusiasm of the Canadian bench to adopt American case law about the tort of invasion of privacy and perhaps even being even more expansive in its interpretation than even the American courts are. If a person, for instance, was uh, committing insurance fraud, and you put them under surveillance and you're doing an investigation and you discovered that they were committing insurance fraud, but you also discovered that they were having an affair or something like that. By that coming out in the investigation, would they have any recourse that they could take as invasion of privacy? For those investigators that come from a public law background, which is a fancy way of saying the police, <laughs> you recognize that you may come upon certain evidence in plain sight that you can look at, and then thereafter you have to get a court order to to seize other parts of the, uh, any evidence thereafter. And there's a Supreme Court of Canada case that uh, where someone came across, uh, they were doing research into a employee's perhaps misuse of of their computer, and in the course of that, they found some pornography. And then they decided to continue on and follow through and find all sorts of other things on their computer. And the court said that, well, the initial accidental discovery, the pornography was fine. It was within the course of the 
initial investigation, but to proceed further, they would have had to get a court order and so on. And so under the criminal law, all the other things were protected under the by Constitution. You're going to see the same type of thing in civil cases as well, where you might trip over something in the course of a fraud investigation that's of interest, but the minute you now report it back to the client when it's outside the course of your investigation, well, that's disclosure, intentional disclosure of something outside the scope of your investigation. And you're going to be held, you as the investigator is going to be held liable for damages for disclosing it to your client when it was information you should never have collected in the first place. So that's where it's going to get tricky because you're right. The information doesn't come in nice little packages and so on. It comes as part of a bundle. And so you're going to have to weed out what you can and can't report to your client. And if you don't have a good retainer letter that allows you to do that, you're going to be caught between a client who says, you had a fiduciary duty to tell me everything you found out in the investigation. And a third party who says, that was my private information. You had no business reporting it to the employer. And now what do you do? So everybody should be running back to their client retainer forms and make sure that they have a right to not disclose private information that would expose them to liability. And the, the right of privacy is being expanded is precisely because with elect, you know, the Internet and everything else, not only do you have access to everybody's private information, but the ability to have it disclosed all over the globe by, say, for example, a disgruntled employer who decides to, to shame an employee or whomever. Once the investigator reports it to someone, that could be disclosed worldwide, and then the investigator is now responsible for worldwide damages for breaching the person's right to privacy and have it disseminated forever. So your report, you have to have a right to restrict who reads it, uh, what you have to, to declare to your client, et cetera, et cetera, and how the information is to be used that you collect from. So there's, there's a lot more to a fraud investigation now than there was 10 years ago. And I don't think people's retainer agreements are keeping pace with these developments. You had mentioned before that since this is kind of a, a look at Canadian courts starting to expand and take a more American look on, on right to privacy and even expanding that definition, do you think that this is indicative of a trend that we'll start to see more so around the world? Americans are the leaders in constitutional rights in general and the right of privacy in particular as it's, as it was a constitutional right and have flowed through the public law right against the police into a common law right against private investigators and others. So because Americans are leading this, every, you know, the uh, European Union, uh, whether they'd like to admit it or not, it looks at American constitutional decisions and other decisions. And in Canada, we openly do that. This is an area where there will be some convergence in the Western world on the subject. The internet is global and you need a global set of rules and because the Americans are first and have the most experience, the courts around in the Western world are going to look for guidance there. One of the things that we do not take guidance from the states is uh, freedom of the press and freedom of expression. We're much more on the side of defamation protection and 
privacy protection than we are on an unfettered press. And so that particular idea that as if you if someone's invaded privacy and they give you a Snowden like tape to disseminate that you're not going to be considered part and parcel of the tort is a dream. If I was in if in the American press, that would come as a complete eye opener because that's just anathema to an entire two centuries of American constitutional law and freedom of the press. In Canada, it's not going to wash. If you've got Mr. Snowden in front of you and he's got illegal information and you're disseminating it, disseminating it over the internet, you're going to get sued too as become as part and parcel of of uh, participating in wrongful activity. Law is starting to catch up with technology also, and that's been kind of a a minefield trying to navigate as technology outpaces decisions in the court right. system. Right, and then the what what usually happens is that. People are got caught in their old ways, and they start, and they have a comfort level, and so forth. And then there's a big case that has to jar them out of their complacency. And in Canada, we haven't had that big case yet, but it's coming because if you look at pleadings, motions, and so forth, every, any attempt to strike the right of privacy as a tort in uh, Canada have been. Uh, failed and there's now class actions on the way that are based on those and so forth and when they get to trial and there's a big damage award that the investigator will pick up and the employer will not then you're going to have then you're going to have entire conferences just focusing on this issue but until that happens people are going to go along in blissful ignorance and hope and never the ideal way to go about Doing an investigation. Well, the other development in the law, which is going to is is part and parcel with the right of privacy, is the is new tort in Canada of negligent investigation, and so they're like the yin and yang of uh, victims' rights, uh, and they, and anyone who considers themselves on the other side of an investigation considers themselves a victim, even if they're a fraudster. So they will, there will be a counterclaim that says the investigator was negligent by not following the protocols of the ACFE in their investigation and, their, and by invading privacy by looking into things and reporting to their client things that were outside the original scope of the retainer. So these two developments together are, are the two things that everyone should keep an eye on, and that... That means that you now need an, uh, an internal compliance department at your investigative firm that makes sure that every investigation follows the ACFE code of ethics and code of professional conduct and standards. And, and when I speak at conferences, I regularly do surveys, and people are aware of these standards, but there is no peer review or compliance before reports go out. And so that is just inviting a claim. And that whenever you see a claim for invasion of privacy, you will also see a claim for negligent investigation just to see if you follow professionals, the standards of your profession. And if you didn't, not that you're going to be in trouble as well. So those are the two developments that are um, on their way into becoming big cases that are going to open everybody's eyes. Thank you again for joining us today, David, and thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of Fraud Talk in the iTunes store or at acfe.com slash podcast. This is Sarah Hoffman signing off.